This is Tribeca Film Festival Live from WNYC. I'm James Ramsey. And I'm Rachel Neal. Harvey Weinstein, super producer, film mogul, co-founder of Miramax, has had his name on some of the biggest projects of the past few decades, from Pulp Fiction to The King's Speech to the reality TV series Mob Wives. I did not know that, but I've seen all those things, and I love all of those things. You could be a mob wife. I could. He also played a big role in the movie Goodwill Hunting, which is screening this year at the festival. And I want to play you a clip of Weinstein talking about the first meeting he had with Ben Affleck and Matt Damon after reading the script. Now, this is from The Howard Stern Show, so there's some adult language. But here it is. Years and years ago, John Gordon, a producer who used to work for me, and Kevin Smith, the guy who created Clerks, say, we've just read a script by these two young actors. It's fantastic. It's called Goodwill Hunting. We want you to read it. They need a million dollars. They just got their script out of Warner Brothers, and they need one million dollars. Otherwise, Warner Brothers is going to make the movie with DiCaprio and Brad Pitt, and it's going to be directed by Michael Mann. I read the script. Walk in. I have a meeting with these guys. Kevin Smith and John Gordon are there. They say, what do you think of the script? They said, I think the script is great. But on page 60, the, you know, the, the guy who played Robin Williams and the other professor, they give each other a blowjob. Right. And they go, I don't understand that blowjob scene. And Matt and Ben said to me, we wrote that for studio executives. You're the only one who ever pointed it out. He said he had meetings with Warren. Well, personally, I'm glad they removed that scene. I, I think that's a good idea. Harvey Weinstein has a reputation for being sort of gruff and controversial, but it is undeniable that the man has made some incredible movies. Here's Harvey Weinstein talking to a packed house at the Tribeca Film Festival. Good afternoon, everybody. Uh, Welcome to the 14th Tribeca Film Festival and our very special conversation with Harvey Weinstein. Um, There's a lot you can say to describe Harvey Weinstein. Um, He is passionate. He knows that in order to make a good movie, television show, Broadway show, whatever type of content, he knows that you have to have a good story and a good script. He is passionate, fearless. He's an activist. Uh, He has a heart bigger than um, than this room. The other thing I can say about Harvey Weinstein is that when he's your friend, you're kind of stuck with him. Even uh, you can fight with him. And um, I just have to tell you a story. Some 27 years ago, uh, Bob De Niro um, had this idea of building this film center in this place called Tribeca. Most people at the time thought Tribeca was in New Jersey. And um, I thought I was going to be doing movies with Bob, and next thing I know, I'm looking for buildings in Tribeca in dank warehouses um, with lots of guano, which meant pigeon shit on the ground. And it was really cold. And so um, there was one day, it was really dank, rainy, cold, bitter, these two guys show up because we were going to, it's going to be a commercial condominium and we were going to sell some floors. So they send me in to go sell a floor. I only knew about selling film projects to studios. So Harvey and his brother Bob walk in and I said, okay, there's going to be a restaurant over here. And then we take this really rattly uh, elevator uh, up to this floor, and I said, there's going to be a screening room over here. We're going to get THX. We're going to have a THX screening room. The guy goes, uh-huh, uh-huh. And then I'm saying, you want to see the next floor? He goes, no, we'll take it. We'll take a floor. I thought, okay, that's how you sell real estate. Uh, that, was, um, that was my first, uh, my first and only uh, deal in real estate, thanks to Harvey. Um, but um, anyway, he's... Uh, the one thing about Harvey's heart and the way he approaches story um, is it's that he's got that kid-like sensibility. It's that child in him that can constantly look at the world and, and be amazed by it, um, which is why he can take something like... Um, he can go from Shakespeare in love 
to Madonna's movies to Tarantino to Scorsese uh, or taking something like Finding Neverland again and now it's on Broadway and he keeps trying and trying to get it right. So instead of me going on and talking about Harvey, I think we should let Mike Fleming um, uh, from Deadline Hollywood and a great friend to the festival. Um, I'll let turn it over to you two gentlemen and please uh, have a chat. Good morning, everyone. Uh, can you hear us? Are we on? Great. Well, what better way to spend a, a Saturday, a beautiful sunny Saturday morning than sitting in a darkened room with the great Harvey Weinstein. Welcome, Harvey. Thank you, Mike. Now, last time I moderated a panel for you, it was with Quentin Tarantino at AFM with most of the cast of The Hateful Eight. And they were all bracing to freeze their butts off in the Colorado Rocky Mountains in zero-degree temperatures for a $70 million Tarantino, a 70-millimeter Tarantino payoff. Give us an update of what you observed on that set and what we're going to see. Well, Quentin, you know, is shooting in 70-millimeter, and um, he's making no compromises. So we're not using snowblowers. We're using the snow. Anybody who doesn't believe in climate control... <laughs> or climate change, whatever, should have been on our set. Because Telluride, we're right near Telluride, is where it snows incessantly. This year, it didn't snow. And, and, uh, and uh, um, DiCaprio was making uh, his movie up in uh, Winnipeg, you know, whatever, and it didn't snow there either. So you know, we'd spend days you know, playing Monopoly as, <laughs> instead of making the movie. But I promise you, you know, having seen about 40 minutes of it right now, it's special and fun and sharp and just new and edgy and it's good, really good. How is it, um, how is it different from, um, from what we've seen from Quentin before? What strides has he taken as a filmmaker? Well, you know, one, one of the things, you know, when this thing came out on the Internet, uh, Quentin took this to LACMA, you know, at the museum. We did a you know, fundraiser for them and sold 1,600 tickets like two hundred dollars each, like, and three hundred twenty thousand went to the museum. And they needed about a hundred, and you know they got a two hundred twenty thousand surplus. We could have done ten nights. When you see this show, you know, I mean, I, I urge Quentin to do this on Broadway. You know, it's just something so so cool and so different. But in the end, you know, cinema wins. So uh, you know, it's it's quintessential Quentin. Well, now um, you have to back your your guy, of course, but why this obsession with hanging on to film in a digital age? Just there's difference. I mean, I mean, it's you know, and you, we did uh, the master with Paul Thomas Anderson. If you saw the seventy millimeter presentation, and then you saw the thirty five millimeter or the digital presentation, it's just like you know, it's ephemeral. It's real. It's just a different feeling. You know, I mean, the digital is. It's faster, it's cheaper, it's a thousand different things, but it's not film. Chris hmm. Nolan, Quentin, they're right at the vanguard of this. And do you think that they'll be able to um, keep this going, or will this be limited to, um, um, to a few of these uh, you know, great filmmakers? Well, my brother and the other studios and... Uh, Eric Loomis from our distribution company you know, negotiated with Kodak. And the good thing about negotiating with Kodak is, you know, they, they, it was once this giant, you know, company, and now it's, you know, from thousands of employees to hundreds. And, um, and they're going to put film back, and they're going to be able to process it. So it's good for them. Look, you know, you, you, there, I remember the first time I saw a vinyl record after the years of CD. I mean, that won't work, and yet I see stores now with vinyl, and I have vinyl myself. So I think there's a quality difference, and mm. I think people know it, and they're willing to, you know, go for it. Well, now, Tarantino might be the only filmmaker outside of Clint Eastwood and maybe Chris Nolan with such an allegiance to a single movie company. Um, tell us the moment. Maybe it came on Reservoir Dogs or Pulp Fiction, 
where you proved yourself to a young auteur um, that he had a permanent home? I think he probably came on Pulp Fiction. And, um, you know, Quentin, after that, you know, when we saw the movie, you know, and then we got into Khan, you know, I had an idea which was just, let's not show this to anybody. Let's just not, not show it in Paris to the critics. Let's just, you know, put the iron curtain down. I just wanted it to be like one of these special nights and let the audience be either blown out or <laughs> yell and boo us out of the palais. So what happened was um, that turned out to be a pretty good decision because, you know, five minutes into the movie, here's this French audience in, you know, black tie, and they're dancing. You know, they're dancing watching this movie. I mean, people were applauding all over the place. The only time I ever saw that in Cannes was when Sergio Giuliani's Once Upon a Time in America, you know, with Bob, and especially that little cake scene, if you guys remember, where he eats the cake instead of, instead of getting, getting the girl. Right. I mean, the spontaneous applause of Pulp Fiction was incredible. Hmm. And ironically, Clint was the head of the jury, and he came us to us afterwards, and he said, I would have given Travolta the best actor, but he said the Cannes Film Festival told me not to. You know, whatever he said. You know, they they were like, you know, they didn't want to let him give so much attention to just one movie. Wow. And um, now, when you first encountered Quentin, what did you recognize in him that other aspiring writers or directors coming up with him in that period maybe didn't have? Well, I met Quentin because I, uh, a woman who used to run my acquisitions, a woman named Treya Hoving, gave me a script to read. Called True Romance, mm. and we bought it, you know, whatever. So I was before Reservoir Dogs. I read that script and went, wow, you know, and, uh, um, you know, just uh, <laughs> I remember, I know what it's like to work for a studio because, you know, we, Warner Brothers eventually made the movie and they paid us a fee and they, whatever, I had a four or five suggestions which I thought were all excellent, and Quentin thought they were excellent too. Warner's didn't, they fired me and paid me. <laughs> Well, now, why didn't Quentin direct True Romance? I mean, Tony Scott did a wonderful job. It's a, it's a great film, but, but um, was he not quite ready? Or Well, they didn't know who he was. I mean, it wasn't, it wasn't you know, he didn't, uh, you know, they, I don't, when they bought the script, they bought it for Tony. Look, Quentin loved Tony. I mean, right. he was just a great friend of Tony's. And, you know, one of the saddest days was when Tony passed. You know, he was a great friend to the company and a great believer in Quentin all along. If you watch... Um, the uh, what's the boat movie with Alec Baldwin and Sean Connery? Uh, oh, uh, yeah, Red October. Hunt right. Red October. You, you can tell, like you know, Scotty Rosenberg is a great friend of ours, and he writes great dialogue too. But there's so much, you know, like they call Quentin in from the bullpen, and he's like Mariana Rivera, you know, whatever. Like there's the funny stuff and the really witty stuff in that movie is all Tarantino. So they just, you know, came in and fixed that. So when he didn't, you know, so when he didn't direct um, True Romance, Reservoir Dogs came after. Yeah, I, I so believe. So how did you get it? How did, so so how did you how did you guys strategize around that to make sure that this was not going to be another script that Quentin didn't get to direct? Well, I saw Reservoir Dogs. He'd already got the financing. Oh, he had. Yeah, from that, I mean, you know, so it was like True Romance, then that, you know, and you know the chronology. Right, and he's and he and he doesn't. Put his scripts out to the highest bidder, like every other director that you've broken. He, he, he actually the years. based his life on, uh, you know, his way of doing things, with uh, the way Clint Eastwood does, you know. Really? And you know, as far as I'm concerned, we, Quentin has a premium deal in the industry, you know, and uh, and that's a result of his loyalty, and you know, and we understand what he likes, what he wants financially, and you know, creatively, and it's worked pretty well so far. And Twenty-two years. And what has he, if you could define what he has meant to you in terms of being able to build a company with a cornerstone director, how would you? Well, I always say that like the Yankees, the house that Ruth built was Yankee Stadium, and the house that Quentin built was Miramax and the Weinstein Company. So he's been the quintessential you know, star of the company. We've had other you know, great directors for Anthony Minghella, you know, for a long period, but I think Quentin was the cornerstone. Right, right. You're listening to Tribeca Film Festival Live from WNYC. Coming up after the break, we'll hear more from Harvey Weinstein. Well, now, whether it's the imitation game or sex lies in videotape or so many others that you have um, 
either acquired at festivals or early on in the script stage, you don't have a lot of time to recognize quality and decide a film's potential. What quality about yourself explains why you have ended up with so many of these memorable films? I think, you know, um, a friend of mine worked for a rival company, and we both saw Cinema Paradiso. And as I walked out, I was in tears because it reminded me of I was a kid. I used to go to the Mayfair Movie Theater, and I used to see all the Truffauts and the Bergmans and, you know, watch the, you know, and when the movies were like, you know, X-rated, like I Am Curious Yellow, we grabbed my dad, you know, who probably fell asleep in the theater, and we could watch, you know, the sexy movie too. But, you know, the, uh, so that Mayfair movie theater was my cinema paradiso. I was in tears. And then I saw other people go, it's schmaltzy, you know, it's sentimental, it's this. So, I don't know, maybe, you know, I could feel it. You mean, and I, I remember Life is Beautiful, the same thing. And we acquired that before that was finished, but, you know, um, seeing it, watching the footage, watching rushes, watching everything. And, you know, the French told me, point blank, you know, that, um, you know, the movie was, you know, disgrace and making fun of the Holocaust. I mean, and just listening to this crap. We did, we did fix that, but right? we put a voiceover narration in. You know, Roberto Benigni and I were, like, scribbling it. And, you know, we, we took that from Mad Max. So watch the movie again. You know, we, we owe George Miller. We should have asked directed hmm. because the whole son thing at the end was, uh, was the road warrior. Well, you... Um an homage to George Miller in Life is Beautiful. <laughs> well, that's a new one. I've never heard that. Well, let's take a specific film. Um, how did you get Ben Affleck and Matt Damon um, convinced that you were the right guy to make Goodwill Hunting, to, uh, Goodwill Hunting, which several companies were chasing, and which these guys, you know, they... they kind of were getting yanked around a little bit. It was at one studio, and... Uh, Give us, give us a sense of how you proved yourself well, to those Well, the studio that owned the script want, had Brad Pitt and DiCaprio ready to do it. They didn't want Ben and Matt. Ben and Matt were not you know, well-known at the time. So um, John Gordon, who worked for me, who now works for Megan Ellison, and Kevin Smith, the great director, said, we've read this amazing script. You know, he, knew, he knew Ben, Kevin. So I read the script, and I have my first meeting with Ben and Matt. They're in the room. Kevin's there. Gordon's there. You know, a couple of executive were talking. I tell them how much I love the script. And I said, you know, guys, on page 60, there's a scene where the two professors perform oral sex on each other. I didn't understand that. I'm, I'm using elegant words. But, uh, you know, I, I said, I didn't understand that. You know what I mean? I thought they were both heterosexual in the way they talked before. He lost his wife, and he talks about his family. And what, what, what the hell was that? That's my biggest script note. And they said, that's the red herring. You're the first. We know you're the first guy at a studio, you mean, you know, to have read the script, because, <laughs> you know, everybody else, obviously, that they went to, you know, read coverage, you know, at the other studio, and they gave me it on the spot. You know, they said, we're making it with you, because you read it yourself, you know, and uh, so, wow. I, my favorite story is, like, in Hollywood, is, like, when they say, uh, they call in the guys, and they said, you know, like, two screenwriters, and then, you know, I think it's attributed to Robert Evans. I'm not sure, but he's, he's supposedly said, I hear this script is great. <laughs> <laughs> well, it's, it's... Try to read once in a while. It helps in our business. Well, it's good that they made it with you. I think that totally would have thrown the movie off. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, now, let's take another one. Um, the idea that you could take a black and white silent film with actors not known in the United States and win Best Picture with that film, it almost seems like something you would do on a dare. So when you first saw The Artist, what? Why? Well, I saw The Artist, and I tracked this movie because I could feel Vincent Maravel at Wild Bunch, who loves cinema. And, you know, we, you know when we're not doing this, we... You know, we're actually more boring than people give us credit for. We talk about geeky movies and, you know, who watches what, you know, Taiwanese, you know, assassin action movie. So, um, you know, so I hear it in Maravell's voice. I can just tell I've known him so many years. And he's talking to me about the artist, and he's seen the rushes, and it's black and white, and it's silent, and I'm, like, getting super excited. I fly to Paris, and, and he shows me most of the movie. 
and I, you know, I, I bought like half the world, whatever was left on the spot, you know, for a considerable amount of money based on what it was. And I called my brother and David Glasser, and I go, hey guys, I just bought this movie, it's great. You know, well, what's it about? You know, whatever, and uh, I said, well, it's about the era of silent movies, you know, whatever, and he said, oh, really, that's good. Anything else? He said, it's black and white. You know, whatever, I said, oh, you'll be fine with that. You know, that's great. We had won the Oscar for King's Speech that year. And, the, and then I said, it's silent. And then, <laughs> and then David said, you're going to have to go to the board, you know, whatever, and explain that. You know, obviously, you're high from the King's Speech. And, I, and, uh, and, uh, and my line to David was, I didn't even know he had a board, you know, whatever. <laughs> and, you know, I mean, they, the guys went nuts on me, you know, whatever, because it was a considerable amount of money. I don't know. I watched that movie, and I, I felt everything that happened you know, to it eventually, you know, the success that it had, everything else, I felt it in the room. You saw yeah. all that. I, I, I t you can ask Vincent, you know, I mean, whatever. I just said I saw it, you know, I mean, I just felt it. I mean, it was, you know, I love Chaplin, I love silent movies, you know, to me it was just an astounding, you know, work of art, you know, wow. and, um, I, and I got to learn about silent movies I didn't even know, you know, from uh, Michelle Hasnavisius, the director, you know, so it was a good experience. Well, now, <clears throat> now, if appearances ruled the day, I have to say, you, you look more like a linebacker who might respond to Michael Bay blowing stuff up uh, than, say, someone who sees the potential in the artist or the imitation game or a foreign film before anyone else does um, and who just mounted a big Broadway musical in Neverland. I mean, to, to what do you attribute this... How did you become who you are? And does the fact that you maybe look physically like someone else, did that help you early on? I love the descriptions of me. I look like a punched out boxer. I read that. <laughs> oh, no, a linebacker's I, good. I look That's like important. a longshoreman. Peter Barr wrote, you look like a longshoreman with mustard stains on your shirt. You know, whatever, you know just it's you know, one of these days. Anyhow, so I'll tell you, <laughs> I'll tell you what transformed me from... Uh, a total longshoreman jock was um, I was I got sick, I got my eye poked out when I was a kid. I was 12 years old, and I looked like Quasimodo with this patch, so I couldn't go to school, you know, because I'd probably scare all the other 12-year-olds. And uh, I had to stay home, and they give me home study. And my mom worked, and my dad worked. You know, we were lived in these sort of rent-controlled apartment in Electchester in Flushing. And um, next door was a retired librarian. Her name was Frances Goldstein. And I knocked on her door one day, and I go, I'm so bored. You know, I was, like, finishing my homework in an hour. You know, like, normally it takes me five hours to do the homework. But when you have nothing to do, you can really blast through it, right. you know, because you're focused. And uh, I realized that I was doing And Normally I do the homework and, like, watch TV, hear the radio, you know, check on the ball game, you know. And, uh, and she said to me, why don't I put you on a reading program? I said, fine. And the first book was H.G. Wells' Outline of History. And um, I read that, and then I started reading others and others and others, and I worked my way up to the Russians. I never got through Dostoevsky, but I did pretty good with Chekhov and uh, Tolstoy, and that was 12 to 13. So I had a voracious, and still do, because of her, you know, she made me a reading addict. And I, to this day, it's this, you know, obviously it paid off in Goodwill Hunting, so I owe that to Francis. <laughs> <laughs> well, you, you've told the story about how you and your brother went to see 400 Blows expecting, hoping for some porn um, and, and discovering something else of great value. What other films did you see in those movie-watching years that taught you the most and, and, and basically made you decide you had to be in this business in some way, shape, or form? It wasn't porn that we were looking for. We were just looking for pretty girls, whatever, in a movie that was sexy and, you know, and uh, you're 14 years old and it says the 400 blows. I didn't even know where this movie theater was. We walked like, you know, five miles to find it and never even heard of the area where it was in, in Queens. You know, we used to go to Lowe's Valencia and see Hercules and Hercules Unchained and Hercules Unchained again, you know, whatever. But, uh, <laughs> you know, that was my movie diet. And in uh, um, 400 Blows, we said, okay, this must be sexy movie. We walked in there and you know here it is this great black and white still probably my favorite film and uh and um you know I you know just to see this movie and it you know the four guys we were with split you know like 5 minutes in they're, they're talking French it's black and white it's about a kid but my brother and I stayed and it just spoke volumes to us 
So it was a great introductory movie. Mm -hmm. And then we went to see all the subtitle movies there. That's where I got my movie education. You know, Philippe de Braca, Bergman, you know, I mean, just every, every, they changed the movies every week. And every week we were there. So it was, it was like the kid in cinema parody, so not in the projection room, but just sitting in the audience. Wow. It's a life-changing, uh, uh, um, I guess, uh, I guess having your, I guess, I guess it, it speaks well of the idea of getting your eye poked out. Yeah. I mean, uh, <laughs> don't try that at home, folks. <laughs> well, now, you know, in, in, in talking about some of your recent uh, big films, You've melded causes into the marketing of the last two picture, best picture candidates, Philomena and The Imitation Game. What gains did you make in, those, in the issues you pressed about forced adoptions in Catholic orphanages in, uh, in Ireland or about getting the British government to pardon homosexuals? Well, you know, you know I always get accused of like, playing the gay card you know what I mean, on the imitation game. I have more awards from GLAAD, you know, whatever, and other media things, and that's been going on for years. If you look at the steady stream of movies that we do, you know, it just, there's, you know, it's a no-holds-barred company, and we, you know, it just, it's important, you know, that other voices are heard and other points of view are given. So anyhow, you know, I mean, they say they're doing this. Benedict Cumberbatch and, uh, um, Great, I'm forgetting Stephen, um, the great comedian, Stephen Fry, yeah. come up with an idea about freeing the 49,000. They make a speech about it, and what I did was put it into action, you know, just saying, okay, we've done this before with Bully, so we got 500,000 signatures, and Millibrand, who's running, and Nick, and Nick Clegg, who's also running against Cameron, have both said that first thing in office, first act in office, when you put a half a million signatures in a politician, Whatever you know, I think they respond because they feel it. They feel it was unjust. It's going to pass. Cameron hasn't said yes yet, but he will. Maybe he's not saying yes because he wants more votes, or he's appealing to some constituency that's you know, you know, um, you know, not you know, uh, open-minded. And um, uh, but it's going to pass. I mean, I'm going to walk out and just say that we were part of the engine that 49,000 people got pardoned with Philomena. Um, uh, you know, we uh, got the Pope, you know what I mean, seriously into that Irish situation. It's a mess, but there are things that are happening, real things that are happening, real, you know, back and forth, real, you know, considerations being done. It's great. I'll tell you how it happened to me. I did a movie called The Thin Blue Line with Errol Morris, and it's funny, uh, somebody had my old letter you know I mean, Errol Morris was the most boring guy I'd ever worked with. You mean, you know, when, when doing a radio interview, you, you'd sit there and the guy would go, "It's a movie about a murder and a, a guy you know, unjust." And Errol, then now he's much better. He's, he's had obvious media training, and um, uh, you know, he would just you'd hear him on the radio and go, oh "My God, turn off the," you know. But and so I sent him a letter which surfaced recently. Dear Errol, I mean, if I hear you one more time on the radio, I'm just telling you I'm hiring an actor to play Errol Morris. And this was this great fun thing with me. And then he loved that letter. And, uh, and, um, and he just said to me, can we get Randall Adams out of jail? This was a guy who was falsely accused of murder in Dallas. And in Dallas at the time, there was a district attorney who was like the death DA. And I re-released that movie 12 times in Dallas. We were relentless. Randall Adams, the first thing Randall Adams did when he got out of jail is come up to my office. I mean, you know, Randall Adams has been a model citizen his whole life, family, everything else. And you take a guy who is unequivocally innocent. And when a guy walks out of the jail, that's, I don't do this, you know. My company has done well over the years. You know that. My, yes. I've done personally well over the years. I'm not playing any card. I'm just trying to do what's right, the right what's, what I think is right card. Not always, you know, what everybody else does. But when you see Randall Adams walk out, it's, trans, it's transformative. So, Wow. Wow. Well, now, last year's, in the best picture race of last year, there was a lot of controversy of accuracy of fact-based fact films like The Imitation Game, American Sniper, Selma, few others. What is the big difference in campaigning for Oscars now, back when, when you started winning them for movies like My Left Foot, The English Patient, and so many others? I think, you know, there's, every year you get the scrutiny. You know what I mean? Like, you, we know we're making 
these movies. They're not documentaries. You know, we gotta, you know, make them fairly interesting, exciting, especially if you want to have an audience. You know, hopefully we don't exaggerate it too much and the main themes are there. So I don't know. People say this about the imitation game and people say something else. You know, it was this whole thing about the New York Review of Books and that they wrote this piece, you know, about Alan Turing and they said that, you know, Alan Turing, you know, um, uh, you know, about his suicide and, you know, it wasn't a suicide and, I mean, whatever, and that we got the facts wrong and, you know, a lot of journalists picked that up, you know, from the, because it's the New York Review of Books. You know, I just said, okay, let's find out if this is true. So we did research with Graham Moore, who wrote the screenplay, and we went deep into the research. We found a letter in 1930 describing a suicide in Alan Turing's uh, written, where he described Snow White and a suicide. I mean, and that he, because he felt ostracized for being homosexual. So, uh, you know, when the New York Review of Books I know things are tough in the journalism business, but get a couple of researchers every once in a while. These things just get viral so quickly. Nobody does the research. So anyhow, you know, I love the New York Review books, so I don't care. I mean, whatever. This affected me. But the Selma thing was crazy. I, we did all the way with Brian Krantz and Lyndon Johnson. Three hours of getting the civil voting rights bill done. He's twisting every arm in the room. This guy was not, you know, Plato or Socrates, Lyndon Baines Johnson. He was a tough senator, you know what I mean, from, uh, from, you know, Texas who knew how to get a bill passed. So the idea that his people were criticizing Selma, you know, why didn't they criticize us? I mean, what, you know, we, we're worse, you know, in terms of that with Brian Krantz. And I called Brian and said, Wow, we got away with we got away with this. It's unfair that those guys. And I know Brian spoke, I spoke, and said, "How how did we get away with it?" And we won the best play last year, and Brian won best actor. Yeah. So n nobody came after us. Why did they come after Selma? Makes you think. Well, are, the, are there any? Is there? So how how was that different from back in the day? Back in the day, the um, studios used to like put movies like Doctor Doolittle up. And that would, you know, like each studio would pick their movie and say, okay, we're releasing this at Christmas. Dr. Doolittle, Best Picture nomination. Why not? Whatever. <laughs> you watch the movie, it makes no sense. But, uh, but it was Columbia or Paramount, whoever the hell it was. And the studios used to come and, you know, say, all right, we've got 800 votes here in the studio, and Paramount has 900, and they'd split up. And that's how movies used to get nominated. I mean, you know, there would be the rare exception you know, that, of a great quality film. In the 50s and 60s, I'm talking about, 1939, you look at the five best pictures, every one of them is, you know, a classic. Right. But, but, you know, so it was different then. But, uh, and uh, they used to have an award, Murnau runner for Sunrise, they used to have an artistic award, you know, originally at the Academy to deal with, you know, artistic movies. And um, uh, just, you know, so we changed that. You know, we, we pretty much changed it with my left foot. Because that's when we send video cassettes out and equal the playing field. It used to be you just go to the studio and watch the movie, you know, hmm. and uh, you'd have to see the movie in the theater. Well, now in the last race, you were you might have been the most outspoken person um, about the injustice of Foxcatcher not being nominated. Is there anything that that the Academy should do to change the way things are now that might make it a more level playing field or 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 celebrate these films? That even if they're not going to win, they need they, they, they need a little bit of love to 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 succeed finding an audience. Is there anything you would change? Um, you know, I I think you know that um, I love the tradition of the Academy. The, the ten picture thing, you know, has always bothered me. You know, because it was always five. You know, you know, put a best comedy in if you want to. You know, delineate something. The Golden Globes do it. I don't think it's heresy to do that, mm -hmm. and it's probably commercial. You know, we have a best animated movie, and it wasn't, you know, in 1930, there wasn't a best animated movie when the Academy started. You know, that was something that the, you know, Pixar and DreamWorks innovated, and it works, you know. So maybe we should have a comedy, maybe we should have an action movie. I don't know, you know, to make the Academy a little bit more commercial and a little wider out. But I still think the best picture should be the five best. Mm. Well, now, um, we mentioned The Artist and some and My Left Foot and some of these other films that, that, did, that, that, that did so well in the Oscars. I always wondered, was there any awkwardness when you 
saw Spielberg after Shakespeare in Love um, won Best Picture over Saving Private Ryan? You know, it was, uh, I think, you know, Stephen loved that movie, and I think I was accused of not liking that movie, which is complete nonsense. I told a very famous person, which they know, about how much I love the film and how much my father was a veteran in World War II, and he was stationed in the Middle East, and, uh, um, you know, I, he never talked about these things, and I understood, the mo I understood my dad when I saw my dad had passed, but I understood my dad from watching the movie, and I told so many people, but they made up so many stories like I didn't like the movie, or I was saying only the first 20 minutes is good, complete and utter crap. You know, so there was antagonism, and I think the other thing was, who, who is this independent? Every dollar that they spent, I matched them. You know, whatever. I, I didn't think that because we were we, you know, whatever, we should just say, okay, well, we're an independent, so we'll spend, you know, half of what they spend and win it with alchemy. You know, we did whatever they did. I know? see. Well, now, and so that, so when you saw Spielberg after, what was that like? I didn't see him afterwards. I mean, you know that night. I, you know, I saw him later. I don't think I don't think it was a love fest. We're, we're, you know, uh, I mean, that's a hard. That was a tough one. Yeah, for them. Really you know, and it was a tough one for us. We never expected it either. You know, but the fun part of that night was my kids because I was just, you know, with my daughter and she didn't want to go to see her mom's a fashion designer and she didn't want to go see her mom's show. You know, she wanted to play in the park instead. And, it, and my other older kids are here, too. The night that we won for Shakespeare in Love, um, my daughters, Emma and Lily, I said to them, guys, come to the awards, and you know, you'll be here, there. We've got two tickets for you. They're little kids. You know, and they said, Dad, Annie's on TV tonight. <laughs> so when I won, I just said, I'd like to thank those two rotten kids at home who wanted to watch Annie instead of seeing Dad win this. You know, and uh, so the rotten kids thing has been there. And by the way, they took the Oscar, put it in Lily's room, and it's right next to Ken, you know, dressed as the Barbie. <laughs> Seriously, I've never seen that Oscar since. Whatever. Out, they, the rotten kids thing blew their minds. So they were determined to steal the Oscar, and they kept it under lock and key next to Ken. I love it. <laughs> You're listening to Tribeca Film Festival Live from WNYC. Coming up after the break, we'll hear more from Harvey Weinstein. Well, now, um, <laughs> now, your company's gotten like 75 or more Oscars. I forget the exact number. And, it, and yet it looks like your biggest windfall financially might be from spinning off the television division to ITV for hundreds of millions of dollars. Tell us, you know, why does a deal like that make sense? And why does it seem like television has become a, a more lucrative business than uh, prestige film? Well, no deal is closed, first of all. Sure. There's interest you know, from many different places, so just say that. We're, you know, we're having spectacular economic success. But I will tell you how I got into television. Jim Dolan, who's Jane and Bob's partner in the Tribeca Film Festival, is one of my best friends. And we were sitting there. I was talking about movies and how tough it is and everything like that. And Jim owns AMC and IFC and Sundance. And he said to me, you know, you should go into television. This is five years. I go, why? He goes, because idiots make money in television. And you're the biggest fucking idiot I ever met. <laughs> And with that, you know, whatever, uh, those words of, you know, encouragement, that's what my friends are like. Yeah. You know, so I don't expect too much, you know. So with those words of encouragement five years ago, that's why I went into TV, you know. And, uh, and Jim said I didn't say F, and he 100% did. And, um, uh, and, you know, that inspired me. And we built a division that's, you know, having huge success. So, and it's great for me because I used, you know, you fight with the director because you don't want the movie to be three hours. Television, do it in ten. <laughs> yeah. I, I go more, not less. <laughs> yes. Well, you know, it, it it seems like theatrical releasing of prestige films has become an increasingly harder road. There's there's less movies for there's less room for movies to breathe and roll out. Tell us what you see as the future for a business that requires big P and A spends. Uh, and they either su succeed, succeed or disappear, it, it feels like, in a microsecond. And then you contrast that to what you just said about television, where there just, it, it just seems to be more opportunity to just let a story run and, and uh, you know, um, 
it, 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 feels, it feels like this television renaissance is having a not great impact on the game you grew up in. What do you think about that? Well, all I can tell you is I'm getting different fans. Mostly the people who like, you know, come up to me are like Mr. and Mrs. You know, Smith, and they're both professors at you know, some sort of college. And they go, we love the artist, or we love King's Speech, or we love Quentin's movie, or we love the French, the, uh, the uh, Intouchable, you know, whatever. You know, just that kind of thing. Marco Polo, I'm in the elevator with the elevator guy, and he goes, dude, you made my year. Whatever. And, and everywhere I go, the cab driver says, man, Game of Thrones and, and Marco Polo, amazing. You know, whatever. And like, I'm just getting like guys who smoke dope, and guys are coming up to me, and they're going, I love that show. I watched 10 hours in a row, man. It was amazing. Yeah. You know, I mean, as opposed to, you know, I really like that French movie you did. <laughs> I'm getting the Quentin crowd on, on the Marco Polos. And, wait, and my brother did Scream, and it's, wow, it's amazing. It's going to be on this summer. It's really scary. But it does and seem... And clean, and you're not R-rated or slasher blood. It's just smart scary. Harder to pry people out of their houses to see um, the next 400 Blows or the next uh, My Left Foot. Um, well, you can, you know, it, you know, it makes us have to be better. I made a movie called Women in Gold, and um, you know, uh, and I don't know if you've seen it, but it's a pretty good movie. But the reviews were crazy bad. You know what I mean? And one of the reviews was in the Guardian, and the guy said, the way they portray Nazis in this movie, you know, they're not gray. They don't give them any human character. And I called Simon Curtis, my director, and Alexei K. Kemmler, and go. We fucked up. We we made the Nazis bad. We should have we should have given them. You know, I said, how could we have made that mistake? And I spoke to Eli Wiesel, who loved the movie, and I told him that story. He was laughing hysterically. He, you know, he survived Auschwitz. He was in the Holocaust. And Abe Boxman too. You know, the, the Guardian. You know, whatever. I mean, you got to be kidding me. What was that? What was that reviewer smoking? We we screwed up on the Nazis. Anyhow, so here's a movie. You know. He, he, I, re I read those reviews and like I'm going, what's going on here? But you know what? You got to trust the audience sometime, and we, we marketed it smartly. You know, little by little. You know, 25 theaters, 200 theaters, 800 theaters. Now it's in 2,000 theaters. It's doing really well. So make a good movie. And that's and and well, now we talked about some of these movies uh, like Shakespeare in Love that, you know, that 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 overachieved. Um, what movies maybe stick in your craw when you think back on them and say, you know what, this movie, this movie deserved better? Are there a few of those, and, and are there reasons why that happened? You know, I did a movie with Jim Sheridan, wrote it, Gabriel Byrne pitched it to me in the Tribeca restaurant, and um, uh, it's called Into the West, and probably, I don't know, probably not too many people saw it, and with Ellen Barkett, who coined my favorite line, she was so difficult to work with. She was Gabriel's wife at the time. And I just said, Ellen, there's this actress, Catherine Zeta-Jones, and she's going to take your place. It seems like you're having a really difficult time making this movie. And, she, and you know, she said, are you firing me? <laughs> and I go, well, kind of, you know, whatever. And, uh, and, she, and the, you know, she thought about it, you know, and she said, give me a day. And the next day she came in, and she was amazing with everybody. I mean, like cooking food for the crew. And, and, and her quote about that was, there's only one diva on a Harvey Weinstein movie, him, you know, whatever. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, um, so I made this movie, and, you know, and uh, you know, Jim wrote it, Mike Newell directed it. It's a beautiful movie about two boys you know, who are gypsy kids. Right. You know what I mean? Their father's an alcoholic, and you know, they rediscover the magic. You know I mean, of, of, with this great legendary white horse, and it's a western. And uh, I love the movie, and nobody goes. And I, maybe I sold it like a family movie. I don't know what I did wrong. So I did, I, I just couldn't help myself. I took an ad out in the New York Times and said, this movie is great. It's not playing anywhere. You know what I mean? And the reason it's not doing well is because we as distributors did a bad job. You know, Miramax. And Peter Bart called me and go, what are you doing? You're an idiot. You whatever. You know, you're admitting that you did, you know, that you did a bad job. So, I mean, so many, this is the, our industry. Nobody takes the blame for anything. Right. I've done bad jobs, you know, whatever. And I took a page in the, in the New York Times to admit it. You know, everybody says it's the, it was the writer. It was the this. It was the Guardian with the Nazis, you know, whatever. Right. You know, but it's never us, right? You know, yeah. So it is us. And I, you know, I, I, one year I, I had a movie called Baran. It's about a 13-year-old um, 
Afghanistan woman, young girl who works on an Iranian uh, 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 great, uh, construction gang. You know, she needs the money, and her father takes her in dressed as a boy. And nobody saw it. it, it the poster is in my house. I love that movie. You know, it's one of my favorite movies mm. that I've ever done, but I managed to not get it. Well, I guess maybe a 13-year-old Afghanistan girl who works in an Iranian construction gang might not be the sexiest plot that the people have heard, right? Yeah. <laughs> and it's in Farsi, too. <laughs> Forgot well, maybe, that part. <laughs> maybe, maybe what you needed was to do it as a five-part miniseries. Or, something. or a musical. <laughs> You know, I can. Uh, we have a little bit of time left before you have to run. You know, I can recall walking out of the premiere of Fellowship of the Rings. I'm walking out. I felt I was just. It was like I just had seen, like in Star Wars in the '70s. That's how it felt to me. I look to my left. I see Harvey Weinstein, and frankly, it looked like someone shot your dog. Um, in the pantheon of ones that got away, where does that one rank? Number one, with a bullet. You know, the, uh, the story of that is, you know, you know, Pete, you know, I did a movie with Peter Jackson. He got nominated for a writing award, Kate Winslet's first movie, Heavenly Creatures. Sure. So he tells me he always wanted to make Lord of the Rings and King Kong. So I make a deal with Universal, you know, and uh, to, do, to, the, to split the two movies. You know, he, he, you know, he talks about, you know, uh, Lord of the Rings first. You know, they hear it, three movies, blah, they're out. It means leaving us with Lord of the Rings. Pete says, in order to do this, I need $10 million to see whether the technology works. So we gave it to him, and that's how Weta was found. So um, we had these scripts. I love the project. We were doing sensational business with Walt Disney. Michael Eisner said this story before. You know, we're getting along great now, but, you know, he just said to me, you know, look, those books, I never liked them. When I was in college, I go, oh, really? <laughs> so many millions of people did. And he just said, I don't, I'm not going to give you the money to make it because it was above my cap. You know, right. like, you know, we can make a movie for $40 million. And we kept on crawling up there. You know, but we started at 20, you know, and uh, he wouldn't do it. You know, and I, I tried to convince Peter to do two movies. I was stupid. I said, I'm going to get John Madden to do it. You know, I just, I wanted the project desperately. And, I, and Pete convinced me to put it in turnaround. And I know he was hurt, but I'm hurt too. And uh, we've had a pretty good relationship since because he got New Line, Bob Shea, you know, really had the vision, went for it, put his whole company in hock, and as an independent, wrote the checks and gave Pete, you know, all the creative authority, you know, that he needed. And there were great executives at New Line, Mark Odesky, I mean, whatever, who really shepherded that project. And so I was the executive producer because... um, I said to you know Eisner, I said, you know, look, I, I'm still going to be the executive producer of this, and whatever. And he said, yeah, you won't make any money. I said, then let me keep half the fee, you mean, which was five points of the gross. So that was, do the math, you know, whatever. And, uh, uh, you know, which is why you don't have to play the gay card, whatever. You know, so it's ridiculous, you know. And uh, Michael was really good. I said, I saw, the, I saw this rehearsal of this really cheesy play, yeah. musical in London, and I said, you know, we should do that at Disney. And he goes, I saw it too, it's terrible. You know what I mean? And, you know, blech, you're, and I said, can I invest it in myself? Mm-hmm. You know, like maybe for my kids' college fund. It was Mamma Mia, you know, whatever. So, yeah. So, wow. Wow. <laughs> there are things that was my first you know, Broadway investment. Well, now you, um, you've always been a very outspoken head of a company. And after the Sony hacking thing, I, th- I think more than ever, the people who run film companies want to be, they want to be as anonymous as possible. Um, what are the benefits and drawbacks of being such a visible figure? Oh, to the point where you almost feel like it factors into the reviews of something like Neverland. Everyone's aware this is Harvey Weinstein. We're judging Harvey Weinstein. What are, the, what are the pros and cons of that? Uh, not too many uh, pros. You can get reservations in fantastic restaurants <laughs> and whatever. That's the pro. You know, the, the con is everything else, you know. And as I say it, you know, um, you know, just, you know, you know, it's not easy to do that. I don't seek it. You know that I don't seek it. But, you know, you know I tried to be supportive to Amy. You know that. You know, I called yeah. her and said, you know, as I stand behind you. And... Um, 
you know, it's just tough, you know, and these decisions are heartbreaking. You know, we have controversial material now. It's just the fact that they can strike like that, and it just throws you off, you know. I mean, just, it's a dangerous time, really dangerous. Well, you know, speaking of that, uh, WikiLeaks just released a searchable list of every one of those documents that the North Korean cyber terrorists dispersed last December. Now, Julian Assange said they belong in the public domain. Tell us why you agree or disagree with that. I mean, this is private property, you know. And Mike Fleming, by the way, did not go for the game, you know, at deadline of publishing these emails. You know what I mean? And, you know, he's one of the rare journalists who stood by ethics and integrity, you know what I mean, and not, you know. So he deserves that round of applause and more. Thank you. I mean... You know why do you why do you have to share that? You know the the, the, the you know the, they got hacked. You mean whatever they paid the price. Executives are no longer there. People you know have moved on. It's wrecked the place emotionally. It's hurt these people. You know I, I you know from people who I know who know Julian, they said he's a compassionate person. You know I I think he's not seeing the human cost. Mm. Well, and on my behalf, I. I Got, we got lucky. We made a decision, and then shortly afterwards, there was a cover letter on the neck, on the on a fresh uh, batch of documents from Michael Linton, that basically said, you know, invoked 9/11 and said they were going to blow up movie theaters. So, it was it, it was easy to feel like we had made the right decision. But if that had gone on for a long time, who knows what you'd be forced to do. But you're right. It's very slippery slope these days. There's so many things, and uh, I'm all byproducts of the digital age, I suppose. But, uh, you know, you take your punches and you keep going, right? You do. I, I hope that Apple and Google and, you know, you know, some of the people there who are politically conscientious try to find new ways to protect us, you know. So, I mean, because we need the protection. Mm. Well, I know you have to go, and I want to say thank you for sharing an hour with us. I think, uh, I think this was a lot of fun, and, um, and thank you very much for uh, giving us your Saturday morning. It's, just, it's, it's a pleasure to be here at the Tribeca Film Festival. I was there with Janie. And seeing Jamie and and Robert, you know, I mean, you know, first put it together with Craig and the whole team. So, just so many great things have happened here. And just remember the origin of it. It happened at a time when this city needed it. I'll never forget Bob De Niro and Jane calling me and saying, "You come into the Chinese restaurant with us tonight." And I go, "Why?" They said, "Because there's no tourists in Chinatown." And then next night, Little Italy. You know, you talk about good New York citizens. Bob De Niro, Jane Rosenthal. Thank you very much. On the next episode, we'll hear from V. Spike Lee about his latest film, the documentary The Greatest Catch Ever. That's next time on Tribeca Film Festival Live from WNYC. Good? Good. Yeah.